Do you, Chris, take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? Do you promise to barrage her with obscure facts concerning comics, movies, TV shows, and toys? I do. And Cindy, do you take this man-child to be your lawfully wedded husband? Do you promise to humor him by engaging him in his obsessive ramblings, for better or worse, in pre-crisis or in post? Sure, why not? Then by the power invested in me by the High Father of the Fourth World, I now pronounce you Supermates. You may podcast with the bride. Hello and welcome to episode 64 of Supermates, Husband and Wife Geekcast. I'm Chris. I'm Cindy. And uh, sorry for the delay on the new episode, uh, but to be honest with you, we were exhausted from the House of Frankenstein, uh, and we needed a bit of a break to recharge our batteries. It was not really a planned break, but it just kind of happened that way. Yeah. Plus, both our kids' birthdays are in November, and mm-hmm. getting gearing up for the holidays. holidays and, and your birthday. Yeah, my birthday and things. And, you know, during this downtime, we had time to reflect a bit, and... Because of such hectic things and due to our personal life, work schedules getting hectic in both of our jobs, getting more hectic. Yeah, I've taken on a lot more responsibilities at work. So Right. Uh, we have uh, made the uh, very, we, we put a lot of thought into this decision and we've decided to go from bi-weekly to monthly with the show. So that means, you know, you'll just be getting one episode a month, but... This will allow us more time to do the show the way we want. The show has evolved over the course of its run, and honestly, now that we're part of the Fire and Water Network, I just don't feel like I can just pop out a, a filler show that's, right. you know, because, I mean, we've got to at least try to live up to the standards set by Rob, Ryan, and Siskoid, and Shag, too, I guess. Oh, uh, so <laughs> not nice. <laughs> so... Uh, oh, and speaking of the network, the cat's out of the bag that I will soon be co-hosting a new Fire & Water Network show with our good buddy Ryan Daly, where he and I discuss one of our favorite subjects, Batman. Yes, Batman Nightcast will basically be our version of Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, and we'll cover the adventures of the Dark Knight in the post-crisis era beginning with Batman number 400. It's coming very soon. Episode 1 was just recorded as we record this, so keep your eyes peeled for that bat signal. And speaking of Ryan, we're kind of invading his territory, or at least his old territory. Ryan just wrapped up one of the best damn comics podcasts ever, Secret Origins, and our subject this month uses that time-honored phrase in its very story title. Now having said all that, I wanted to tackle a subject that I've been dying to get to since the show launched. One of my favorite comics of all time, World's Finest Comics number 271. Uh, our podcasting pal Michael Bradley produces a Superman-Batman podcast, which has unfortunately been on a very long hiatus. Michael assured me he would one day get to this issue, and I'm sure he will, but I just can't stand myself any longer, so we're, we're going to offer our take on it. Uh, I actually ran this subject by Michael Bailey as a possible idea for his guest spot on the show, but we did the Incredible Hulk episode the first instead. Besides, I think Michael Bailey had already covered this with Scott Gardner on an old episode of Back to the Bend. So. so I decided what better way to recharge the old batteries than to just share this with my wife and watch her head explode from all the continuity patching and retconning going on in this awesome 48-page tale. I just kept going, what? 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 Yeah, she was sitting on the couch. Just <laughs> I was watching me, the MeTV 
sci-fi Saturday night block last night, and she just was sitting there reading and go, what? 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 So that gives you an idea of where we're coming from with this one. It's a little, little ahead of the game there. So, so without further ado, we will just jump right into this baby. World's Finest Comics number 271 was cover dated September 1981. It was on sale June 18th of 1981. The cover... So if you got any old acid lying around, go ahead and drop it now because you're going to need it for this. <laughs> go go see the Doctor Strange movie and watch all those trippy parts of that and then come read this. Get your doobie. <laughs> Smoke a fatty for Big Daddy. There you go. <laughs> we do not encourage you to use drugs. I'm no, 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 no. The, the, the Fire and Water Network in no way encourages you to use drugs. Um, and we don't either. Yeah, we, we don't either, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> The cover by George Perez shows Superman, Batman, and Robin bursting through old comic covers. We see the covers of World's Finest number 84, number 94, Superman number 76, and Adventure Comics number 275. On display is a DC dollar comic trade dress used during this period of the book's run, and a notice to now see the film Superman 2. Another text box up top informs us that this issue contains an all-new book-length novel celebrating the 200th anniversary of the Superman-Batman team. One more blurb screams, Revealed at last! The secret origins of Comicdom's greatest team! Oy. Okay. And the very on-the-nose uh, title of this story is The Secret Origins of the Superman and Batman Team. Notice the S. <laughs> secret origins. Origins. Yes, please notice that. <laughs> Plural. Roy Thomas, writer, Rich Buckler, penciler, Frank McLaughlin, inker, Carl Gafford, colorist, John Costanza, letterer, Lynn Ween, editor. Special thanks to Jack C. Harris and E. Nelson Bridwell. In his apartment at 344 Clinton Street, a sleeping Clark Kent suffers through a vivid nightmare. In this hellish vision as Superman, he is bombarded with deadly kryptonite rays emanating from the hands of a man clad in an orange bodysuit with a yellow cow, cape, trunks, and boots. The lightning bolt emblazoned villain calls himself the Atom Man, and as he takes a killing swing at the Man of Steel, Clark awakens, screaming. Unable to sleep, Clark puzzles how he's seen the uniform of Atom Man before, even if he can't recall the fiend wearing it. His attention is soon diverted by a WGBS news broadcast reporting on a four-alarm fire in Gotham City. Seeing that his old friend Batman is on hand, Superman races off to give aid. The last son of Krypton makes quick work of the fire thanks to a nearby water tower. The Gotham firefighters on scene uncover a strange object inside the burning building, right at the perceived epicenter of the explosion. A metal coffin with the very symbol of Adam Man is on top of it. As Superman attempts to scan it with his vision powers, the coffin explodes. Superman shields Batman and the fire department with his indestructible cape, but he soon felled to the ground a green glow covering his body. From the remnants of the coffin rises the Atom Man. He taunts the downed Man of Tomorrow, telling of how he has waited to destroy Superman for decades. Batman recognizes the Atom Man's uniform as one once worn by a robot Superman had created. Batman attempts to step in and defend his friend, but Atom Man's power proved too great for the masked manhunter, and Atom Man tosses him aside like a rag doll. Superman manages to muster some super breath to move a discarded couch under the falling Batman, just in time. Adam Man gloats that he is going to allow Superman to recover, just so he can live in fear of their next encounter. He destroys a fire truck on his way out and flies away. Superman passes out and dreams once more. In this dream, he is Clark Kent responding to a mysterious call at the Metropolis docks. 
There, in a nearby rowboat, he finds the wounded and unconscious body of a boy dressed in the costume of Robin, the Boy Wonder. Back at Clark's apartment, Robin comes to and tells Superman of how Batman had disappeared and he sought the Man of Steel's help through his friends at the Great Metropolitan newspaper. The Boy Wonder had followed Batman's trail only to be attacked by a group of men who mentioned a boss named Zoltan. A quick look through the yellow pages tells Superman that Zoltan runs a wax museum, and the two heroes fly off. There they find a wax statue of Batman with a secret inside. This is the real Batman covered in super hard wax alloy. Superman frees the masked manhunter who reveals Zoltan's plan of smuggling famous scientists out of the country as wax statues so that they can be put to work for America's enemies. The world's finest trio quickly round up Zoltan and his crew, and Superman springs back to consciousness in the present. He and Batman later confer, with Superman baffled about his dreams, particularly the last, since it wasn't even close to how he and Batman first met. Ever the detective, Batman believes there may be some clue into the true way they first met, so Superman recalls his days as Superboy, and how a man named Thad Lennis and a young, dark-haired accomplice trailed him for weeks in an effort to uncover his secret identity. Superboy watched the mysterious teenager steal away with a set of fingerprints he left on a burned building, and for years feared he and Linus may try to expose his secret identity. Years after he and Batman became friends, he learned that boy was Bruce Wayne, the Batman himself, Then he had never planned to tell Linus Superman's secret ID, he just wanted to test his detective skills with a great mystery. Superman then recounts how he met Robin before Batman. A few years back, on a visit to the Fortress of Solitude, Robin found Superman near death after a kryptonite bomb, hidden in one of his old Superboy trophies, exploded. Using the time ray of their friend, Professor Carter Nichols, Robin went back in time to warn Superboy and find the bomb, hidden in a clock to be presented to the Boy of Steel. The clock is uncovered and Superboy hurdles it into orbit. His mission accomplished, Robin returns to the present. In the present of this story, Batman comments on how he and Superman are now much smarter about time travel and that you can't really change the future, thereby wrecking many great DC time travel yarns. Superman's mind wanders into the past again and how a young Bruce Wayne once had a brief stay in Smallville. Bruce was soon the object of Lana Lang's affections Tramp. and Clark Kent found himself jealous. While Superboy was out of town, Robotic Tank attempted a robbery at the Smallville Bank, and Lana helped young Bruce foil the plot with a witch doctor mask from her archaeologist father's collection. Bruce called himself the Flying Fox, but when he met Superboy in this guise, the Teen of Tomorrow cheated and peeked with his X-ray vision. Of course, Bruce was pretty sure Clark was Superboy from his last visit to Smallville, and using an oscilloscope proved that Clark and Superboy had the same vocal patterns. Superboy then shared a bit of the future with Bruce via his time telescope, showing the wealthy teen that he and the adult Clark would be friends and crime-fighting comrades in the future as Superman and Batman. Superboy then used his spinning hypno-wheel to erase these <laughs> memories from both Bruce's mind and his own. Sorry, foreshadowing my opinion here. Mm -hmm. But not before realizing the flying fox is a species of bat. Batman recalls the two met one more time during their teen years when Bruce Wayne was forced to help a group of hoodlums win at gambling debates. Superboy, of course, came to the rescue. Neither Bruce or Clark recognized each other this time, thanks to that hypno-wheel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Superman then briefly recounts how he felt when he first heard of Batman's existence in a meeting at the Daily Planet. While Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen were dubious, 
Clark Kent was happy to have another hero on the job. His mind back in the present once more, Superman hears mention of Atom Man on a nearby radio, and he and Batman fly off to intercept. On their way, Batman wonders why Superman has yet to mention Atom Man's uniform being an exact duplicate of the Power Man robot he once built to protect Batman and Robin from a death ray Lex Luthor had created. This makes Batman recall that mission. Now he then recalled their first true meeting as adult crime fighters. Confused yet? Yep. <laughs> the Dark Knight reminisces on that fateful encounter many years ago. Receiving a tip about kryptonite smuggling, the dynamic duo raced to Metropolis in their bat plane, only to witness Superman chasing a helicopter full of fleeing criminals. The crooks blast the Man of Steel with a liquid kryptonite gun, and only the swift actions of the Cape Crusaders stop the Man of Steel from a deadly fall to Earth. From inside the bat plane, they lower Superman's body into the nearby waterfall to wash off the deadly goop, and soon the world's finest heroes are shaking hands for the first time. The heroes discover the crooks hide out inside an abandoned windmill, and for the first of many times, they swap identities, with Batman wearing a Superman disguise and costume to fool the criminals into thinking the gun had no effect on the Metropolis Marvel. The real Steel Deal and the Boy Wonder then join in to round up the crew. Once more in the present, Batman reminds Superman of Power Man, and the Man of Steel is embarrassed that his super memory didn't recall such an obvious connection. Hypno will, maybe? Who knows? <laughs> he soon got more pressing problems when they arrive at the WGBS Daily Planet building, where Adam Man holds its symbolic globe high above the city streets. Adam Man challenges his foe to a battle, and the Man of Steel obliges, after constructing a lead shield to help him against the kryptonite rays. Superman is forced to shatter the planet globe when Atom Man hurls it, and in doing so, loses its shield. While Batman is busy saving annoying reporter Steve Lombard from the planet's rooftop, Superman is devastated by kryptonite blows and crashes to the pavement below. The cowed crime buster manages to appeal to the radiating madman's ego by suggesting that he should wait until tomorrow to finish Superman in front of a large crowd of spectators. Atom Man agrees and sets the time and location for noon at Sportsman Stadium. He flies away and Batman pulls his battered friend up from the crater he created. The following morning, Lois Lane and Steve Lombard report on the upcoming battle on the WGBS News and wonder why Adam Man called Metropolis Stadium by the wrong name, a name originally proposed when it was built in 1940. Meanwhile, Bruce Wayne sneaks his weakened friend Clark Kent into the Wayne Foundation building in Gotham. Back in costume, Superman admits it's taking him longer to snap back from Adam Man's attacks each time and begins to wallow in self-pity a bit. Batman's not having it, and his friendly boost of confidence reminds the Man of Steel of the time they first learned each other's identity. He recalls how he was forced to share a cabin with Bruce Wayne while on a vacation cruise and how a fire on the docks forced them into action and the revelation of their costume identities. They spent the rest of the cruise trying to find out who started the fire and toying with the affections of Lois Lane. Batman think, then thinks back to the true beginning of their regular teamwork, the day Superman saved the dynamic duo when their Batplane was shot down over Metropolis by even more crypt armed kryptonite thieves. Unfortunately, Lois Lane witnessed his change from Clark to Superman, leaving the Man of Steel with a major problem. Luckily, his new friend was a master of disguise, and so the two switched identities, trying to convince Lois that Bruce Wayne was Superman. In the meantime, Clark, as Batman, followed the kryptonite thieves and succumbed to its radiation, passing out in their cabin. Already convinced Bruce was Superman after witnessing him fighting a lion, trained to fall on command, 
and breaking a pair of scissors, which were rigged, on his hair, Lois discovered the unconscious Batman and deduced Clark Kent was the Cape Crusader. After Batman saved the day disguised as Superman, the real action ace flew Lois back to the Daily Planet to meet Bruce Wayne. Thoroughly confused, Lois dropped the notion, but as Superman puts it in the present, in a few days she was back to busybody as usual. As the world's finest heroes try to determine the origins of Adam Man, the villain himself recounts them in his hidden cave headquarters across the river from Metropolis. The man once known as Heinrich Melch reminisces back to Germany in the waning days of the Third Reich, spring 1945. In another hidden cavern, Dr. Tufel rants about his, how his formula will revive the crumbling dreams of their fallen Fuhrer while they crush the very symbol of the America who defeated them, Superman. Tufel's colleague, Melch, offers a perfect test subject, his son Heinrich. The blonde-haired, blue-eyed Heinrich is injected with Tufel's formula and begins to glow green. He soon learns to control the glowing power, and his mentors give him his special costume and a pair of mesh gloves and a control device to help regulate his abilities. He is then sent to Metropolis in its greatest newspaper, seeking the friends and allies of the Man of Steel so that he may destroy them, operating as an American veteran turned reporter named Henry Miller. He notes how he quickly gained the confidence of Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen, but the sickly Clark Kent constantly avoided his company. His mind then drifts to his eventual confrontation with the Man of Tomorrow on a sandy beach outside of Metropolis. While he never got a chance to don his special uniform, Adam Man attacked his Kryptonian enemy with all of his deadly power. Superman took his foe into the skies while his foe blasted him. As Superman weakened, they both fell, Adam Man unable to defy gravity at this time. Superman believed his foe dead and found his costume nearby. Fashioning a lead coffin, he buried Adam Man's still-living, catatonic body far below the site of a proposed building. Adam Man's mind returns to the present, and he wonders why he awakened when he did. Why have his powers changed? And why the name of the newspaper Henry Miller once worked at changed from the Daily Star to the Daily Planet? He ponders these things as he races to his rendezvous with his destiny, to destroy Superman. He finds the Man of Steel waiting for him in a stadium full of cheering but worried spectators. Adam Man notes that Batman isn't here to witness his friend's demise, but Superman simply tells him he's busy. When Adam Man starts ranting, Superman informs his foe this isn't one of the Fuhrer's Nuremberg rallies. This sets the madman off and he takes a swing at the Man of Steel, rather than a kryptonite blast just as Superman wanted. But it doesn't take long for Adam Man to begin his kryptonite swinging and Superman is forced to repeat history, taking his foe into the sky. High above the stadium, he grips his enemy in a bear hug and vibrates both of their bodies. Adam Man breaks free and attempts to fly downward, but finds that he has suddenly lost his power to defy gravity. Below, Batman and Robin wait to break his fall with a circular net. Meanwhile, the weakened Superman also falls, but is caught by... Superman! As Batman and an older Robin make quick work of the depowered Adam Man, the strange events become clear. Thanks to a vibratory jump, we are now on Earth 2, and the gray-haired original Superman and the older ex-teen wonder Robin have lent a hand to their Earth 1 friends. Kal-El, the Superman of Earth 2, explains that it was he who met Robin and the now-deceased Batman of his world on the case involving Zoltan, and it was he who fought the Atom Man those many decades ago. Earth 1's Batman surmised that Atom Man had somehow switched Earths during his sleep due to his mention of Sportsman Stadium, a landmark Batman remembered only existing on Earth 2 thanks to the JLA-JSA team-ups. 
The epic battle between the original Superman and Atom Man resonated across dimensions and, and was perceived as dreams by his Earth-1 counterpart. Robin congratulates this younger Batman on some great detective work, and soon the world's finest team vibrate back to Earth-1. As they re-enter their home dimension to the roar of the crowd at Metropolis Stadium, Superman wonders if he'll be able to stay in business as long as his Earth-2 doppelganger. Batman assures him that, that he will, just so that the two of them can get each other out of scrapes. After all, what are friends for? Okay, so what do we think of this? Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> exposition that you can barely see the pictures <laughs> i mean come on well, well, when each box when each panel is three-fourths dialogue because you're like well this and this and this and this and this and then picture that's a problem <laughs> well now roy thomas is worthy there's no two ways about it roy thomas is very verbose uh he had a lot of stuff to cover in 48 pages and as much as I love this story, and as much as I love the concept of Earth 2, this is one of those tales, in, in looking at it with a critical eye, you can kind of see, this is, this is why crisis happened, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. in, a lot of, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways. Uh, now, you know, you can make a case for, okay, they could have just jettisoned some of this stuff and just not counted it. But, you know, the, the idea back then was to... Everything counts, unless it's just totally, like, it's Bob Haney being, like, you know, Bob Haney. Mm. And Batman's got a brother and, you know, crazy stuff like that. So, so a little background info on this before we get into the blow-by-blow. Blow. This issue was one of many history lessons that DC was doing back around this time. An influx of new creators, many who had been at Marvel for many years, they seemed to be itching to retell the origins and important stories of the DC characters. Before this, there was Action Comics number 500, The Life Story of Superman, there was the three-issue Untold Legends of the Batman miniseries that we covered way back on episode number seven. Flash number 300 shipped the month before this, and it featured the history of that character. So this, though it was kind of weird, DC, and I think we mentioned this before, they were kind of like cataloging their history just a few years before they just wiped it all out, or a good chunk of it out. They didn't wipe all of it out with Crisis, but part of it. Now, Roy Thomas had just defected from Marvel, having worked as both a writer and editor there since the mid-60s. Thomas was their heir apparent to Stanley himself, and he was the first editor-in-chief of the company after Stan moved upstairs to publisher. The ascent of Jim Shooter to the top chair in the late 70s pushed many Marvel creators over to DC, but Thomas was perhaps the highest profile, having never worked at DC before. Ironically, many of the stories that Thomas adapts in this story came under the watchful eye of longtime Superman editor Mort Weisinger. Thomas came to New York to work for Weisinger in the mid-60s, but found him so insufferable, he went over to Marvel just after a few days. Oh, wow. And stayed for 15 years. Yeah. Dang. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And E. Nelson Bridwell that contributed, which I'm sure he got to thank, he was the walking DC encyclopedia, and especially concerning Superman. And, I mean, he, he knew he knew Crypt... Kryptonese before anybody did. I mean, he he was the a Superman theologian basically. I mean, and uh, 
he was actually, Thomas didn't know it at the time, but he had basically been hired to replace Bridwell. And that was another thing that he didn't like because he wasn't told that. Yeah. And so when Thomas left, Bridwell just stayed in his job work, working for Weisinger, who apparently treated him horribly. So, uh, According to his D.C. career retrospective in Alter Ego number 100, when he came to D.C., Thomas requested he not be given any Superman or Batman assignments. He liked the characters, but felt he didn't really have any stories to tell with them. Plus, they were in multiple titles, so he wouldn't be able to develop them, develop them like other characters. Right. Of course, DC gave him a Superman tabloid book and a regular assignment on Batman and this. <laughs> the things that he did not ask for. Exactly. Outgoing World's Finest editor Jack C. Harris approached Thomas with the idea of covering all of the Superman and Batman team origins. Harris knew of Thomas's love of comics history, and the DC editors and higher-ups were looking at Thomas as a comic continuity guy, having often mined stories of the past for his work at Marvel. Like at Marvel, it was Thomas who created the Invaders as the the not basically non-existent World War II superhero team uh, with Captain America, oh. Submariner, and Human Torch. You know, basically taking all those comic book covers that they were on together and saying, okay, they were a team. And that's kind of, and then basically redid the same thing at DC with All-Star Squadron. So... Although they first appeared together on the cover of New York's World Fair Comics number two, and then 70 consecutive covers of World's Finest that followed, Superman and Batman had solo features in the books for well over a decade. Other than a brief in-story meeting in All-Star Comics number eight, Thomas pointed out their first meeting was on the Superman radio show. Batman and Robin became frequent guests on the show after Superman found Robin floating in that rowboat on September 5th, 1945. They even took over the show when Superman actor Bud Collier took a vacation from time to time. The inclusion of this meeting as the origin of the Earth 2 World's Finest Team led to Thomas and Harris deciding to use Superman's most famous radio foe, Adam Man, as the villain. The radio show also gave us the first use of kryptonite. And they used the name Adam Man in the second Superman serial, even though it was the same, wasn't the same character. It was Lex Luthor in disguise. Right. So. Oddly enough, in this very same month, one of Thomas's big DC projects debuted, All-Star Squadron. There, Superman, Batman, and Robin appeared together in 1941, so it kind of sort of contradicts this story a bit. So, uh-huh. <laughs> But you can say, well, they kind of knew each other, but not really. But anyway. In his intro to this issue, Thomas says he hopes to adapt more radio stories to comics, but it sadly never came to be. Now, before we get into the notes on the meat of this story... I want to talk about how why this issue is very special to me because one of the first comics I remember owning was a copy of World's Finest number 179, which was an 80-page giant reprinting many of the stories that are adapted here, including World's Finest number 71, the first issue where they teamed up, number 94, which was the true origin of their team with the robot Power Man, and Superman number 76, where they learn each other's secret identities. I picked this up at the Georgetown Flea Market which is long gone now. And that one time, that was Georgetown. That was their flea market. Yeah, that about, was it. They, then they opened a Toyota factory yeah. <laughs> about 30 years ago, and it just exploded. And now it's basically a, a suburb of Lexington. But but anyway, uh, but I got it at the Georgetown flea market, and I read it to death. Mm-hmm. Most of my copy remains, although the first 10 or so pages in the cover are gone. This was my first exposure to the early Silver Age versions of the characters, and the very first time I saw Dick Springs, Batman, and Robin, which is one of my favorite versions of them. 
this issue we're covering is essentially a sequel to that wonderful comic, so that's why I wanted to do it, and that's why when I picked this up off the stands in 1981, I was just like, hey, I know all this, you know, <laughs> so... Uh, I I love this cover. I'm a sucker for characters bursting out of old comic book covers, though, which is one reason why I love the opening of Batman: Return of the Cape Crusader. Right. Because all the if if you guys haven't seen Batman: Return of the Cape Crusader, go watch it now. It, it is, is so good. It's awesome. We saw it in the theater when they had the one day showing. Yeah. And I've watched it already. I've watched the opening multiple times, but I've watched it again on the Blu-ray. The Blu-ray's out and everything now, so. It is a very clever, well done sequel. It is available for seventeen ninety six on Amazon. Is so, it? Yes. Is so it right now. Cool. Yeah. So, just saying, putting a little plug in there. Yeah. Great movie. It's a, actually a Batman movie you can watch with your children. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. 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 But it's. I mean, it's it's really clever, really well done. I mean, it's it's got the spirit of the TV show, but it takes things beyond what they could ever have done on there. But it, it's 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 great. It, it was better than I even thought it was going to be. Now, Superman on the cover, he's doing the classic Murphy Anderson Aquaman stock, stock art pose where he's making a U, which I associate that with Aquaman, so that was kind of odd. But, I mean, it's, it's George Perez, so, it, of course, it's awesome. I remember when we got get inside the comic and on the first page, I remember thinking, that guy's name's Power Man, not Adam Man. You know, so right off the bat, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know, I know this comic. I know that guy's suit. You know, right. Rich Buckler is in his Neil Adams-like phase here. He started out aping Kirby at Marvel, but most of his DC work is pretty Adams-like. Buckler's work was always welcome to me, as it was more dynamic than some of the other DC artists. And he did have a pretty long run on World's Finest during this period. And he started out being the artist on All Star Squadron. Years later, I discovered he liked to swipe. A lot. I mean, there's a lot of swiping going on in his artwork, and he's been called out on it. In fact, uh, at one time, uh, one of the comic magazines really just raked him over the coals, and I think he sued him. And I mean, it was like, yeah, it was, I think uh, it was Comic Journal or something like that, yeah. But if they say, hey, this appeared here first, and it came later, then how did he win? I don't know. I can't remember, but I don't know if they settled, or I don't know what happened. But mm -hmm. yeah, it was got pretty ugly, but... It's still great looking stuff. I mean, it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's very solid superhero comic stuff. It's very dynamic. But like you said, unfortunately, it gets covered up by a lot of word balloons and captions. <laughs> now, there's a lot of hypno, 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 there's a lot of hypnosis going on in this story. Super, a lot. Superman gives himself a post-hypnotic suggestion every night so he won't level his building when he has nightmares. So I guess that kind of makes sense, but it's like, you know, maybe some things are just better you just don't think about. You know? Right. I mean, like, uh, you don't have to explain every little thing. Some things just are. Right. Right. Yeah. It's easy for, to forget the Earth One Superman was kind of cocky. He's not flame-proof, but I am as he flies away, you know. Yeah. I mean, you could kind of hear the Danny Dark on the Super Friends saying that. He's not flame-proof, but I am. You know, this. You know, it's kind of... Over the well, top. the whole thing is like, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm sure in a city as big as Metropolis is, there's a big fire happening there. Why has he got to go over to Gotham City for that particular fire, you know? Mm, true, true. I mean... Yeah. <sighs> Wait a minute. I just now thought of something. What? Did I get that wrong? Let's see. Yeah. Now, okay. Think about this. This is in Gotham City where this fire's taking place. Uh -huh. The Adam Man's coffin 
is found in Gotham City. City. <laughs> it is. Wait a minute. <laughs> but Superman buried him in Metropolis. Metropolis. And that's where the whole action takes place. The stadium and blah, you know. Yeah. That is a plot hole. <laughs> oh, good it, catch. It vibrated dimensions and locations. <laughs> Across the country. He's like going under there. <laughs> Well, you know, according to Man of Steel, or not Man of Steel, according to BVS, which I know, guys, I'm, I'm, I know I mentioned BVS. It's against the BVS Accords. I'm not supposed to mention it. But Metropolis, you can throw a rock from Metropolis to Gotham. Uh-huh, you know, apparently. apparently. So, but still, I mean, because he, we got to, now we got to double check when Superman buries him. Because this is, this is, this is bothering me. That <laughs> says that, you know, they went up, now they went up in the sky Superman took him up in the sky, and he blasted him, and he fell. Uh, and he said, you know, he took him up, and let's see. Uh, blah, 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 when he blah. buries him. He buries him, and he doesn't say anything about being in Gotham, so you just assume he's, because it says uh, they start out, uh, we Wait faced a minute, each other this. on a sandy beach not far from Metropolis, but they obviously fell more, even though Buckler's drawing it more still like he's out in the mountains somewhere. He obviously had to bury him somewhere, you know, where there's going to be construction soon. So he doesn't say anything about being in Gotham. So that's a plot hole. So there you go. I just now I didn't even think about that when I was doing my notes, but it just hit me. So there you go. Anyway. Oh, logic lad. Logic lad. Yes. (laughs) There's logic need not apply with this one. Uh, (laughs) And cannot. Okay, I'm going to come out and say it. Thomas's Batman dialogue is way off. If if I can't hear Adam West or Kevin Conroy saying it, then it's wrong, in my opinion. Because, you know, with, like, early Golden Age and then from the 70s on, I hear uh, Conroy. But, like, from the mid-Golden Age up through the end of the Silver Age, I hear Adam West, you know. Right, right. Because, you know, it, it, and I can't hear Adam West or Kevin Conroy saying any of these things. It's Batman says fella a lot. And he's just even Adam West, who was obviously the the uh, the light knight as he calls himself nowadays. You know he he didn't. You know he wasn't that personal. He kept it at a professional distance. You know. Yeah, and and making I'm I'm trying to find it, but he's basically like, well, I'm no Freud or anything, but you know I'm not going to let it get too sexy. And I'm like, yeah, what? yeah. When Superman says, "I'd like you to help me dope out my dream," which Superman's dialogue is actually pretty. Is fine, you know. I'm okay with it. Yeah. But it's it's right when he first, they, it's when he at the end of the fire, he says uh, uh, something about uh, Freud and yeah, he says and I'm just something like, about what? being sexy. Not, I hope it's not anything too sexy. It's right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm no Jung or Freud, but maybe if it's not too sexy. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. It's, I don't want to hear Batman say the word sexy ever. Ever. No. Yeah, unless I'm, he's imagine, talking about you know, imagine, Catwoman. I imagine Adam. <laughs> Adam West saying, I'm no young or Freud, but maybe if it's not too sexy, you know, yeah. or, or, you know, or Christian Bell, I'm not young or Freud, but maybe it's not too sexy. I mean, it doesn't work either way. Why? You no. Know, like... <laughs> so, you know. I mean, that gave me the crawl. Yeah, man. it's like, I don't want to hear, you know, there, there's tons of slash fiction out there that we don't need to get into that. We'll take care of this type of stuff. We don't need to hear ever Superman and Batman ever utter the word sexy around one another. No. Okay. No. <laughs> but, yeah, his Batman dialogue is really just not 
he does not have an ear for Batman to me in this in this story at all. Uh, one of the firefighters has a thought balloon wondering why soups and bats have stayed cronies for so long with so little in common. In a few years, comic creators will take this and run with it, and it will become the very basis of their relationship, whether they get don't get along or they somehow do get along. You know, like in the Superman Batman title, once they finally gave him a book again, every you know issue there was a panel. It's like I don't know why I like him, but I do. You know, basically that yeah. we we have we're so different. You know, or you know, Superman will have a panel that says, despite our differences, and Batman will have a panel that says, despite our differences, you know, and so that's kind of... And what about the firefighter? You know, you said that about an ear for dialogue. He's like, you know, Batman, why do we need Superman here? We can handle it. And I'm like, he's saving lives, you moron. What's <laughs> yeah. it matter where he comes from? Right, yeah. It's I like, mean, hello, turf war. Yeah, exactly. Did those guys in the chemical, the firefighters at the chemical plant fire in Superman 3 complain about Superman... Dropping the lake on the fire to stop it. No. No, and that is an awesome part of that movie. You can say what you want about Superman 3, but I, I, I'll get that out and I'll watch that part and I'll watch the fight with the evil Superman and Clark. Yeah. Because those parts are awesome. <laughs> and oddly enough, I just brought that up and and, and uh, uh, Robert Vaughn just passed away the other day from it was Superman and Superman 3. Oh, yeah. He was did a bad that. guy. I'll, you know, not to get derail this, but Superman 3 in... Uh, it was it wasn't it was a misguided thing to do to make a Richard Pryor Superman movie. Uh-huh. But you know, and he's not funny in it because they I think they they supposedly expected him to ad lib and he didn't. <laughs> so he's not really funny, but you know, Superman 3 is not as bad as it's at least it's made well, you know. Right. And Christopher Reeves in it, it's got good effects and you know, Superman 4's got Christopher Reeves in it and that's really all you can say for it. Because <laughs> the budget's just gone on that one, but anyway. Well, you know, you've got in Superman three, you've got like you said, scenes you can pull out the Smallville stuff yeah, with him and Nato yeah. Tools, Lana Lang, and stuff like that. Which she, you know, she's great as Lana Lang. So yeah, uh, Batman recognizes Adam Man's costume right off. Let's table that for now. But he recognizes him. We 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 said that in the notes, but he does. So he does. Batman does. Uh, the guy's radiating kryptonite. I know that doesn't hurt humans in this continuity, but you think Batman, being the strategist, might consider this guy maybe out of his league and not just try to punch him? <laughs> he just walks up and tries to punch him. You know? Uh, uh, Supposed to be one of the greatest minds. Right. You know? Even the super friends Batman would have pulled some crazy bat contraption out of his belt and tried it on him first. Yeah. You know? Um, you would think Adam Man destroying the fire truck would be a big wow panel, but it's tiny and you can't really tell what's going on. I had to go back and read it. I'm like, oh, that's what he did, you know? And I think a lot of that's where, it might be where this, I don't know if this thing was drawn Marvel method, which that's where, like, Roy Thomas would give Rich Buckler the plot, and sometimes they would give him, like, a, a, a basic breakdown, mm -hmm. and sometimes they wouldn't, and they would go out, go off and draw it, and then they would dialogue it after the art's already done. But this thing's so text-heavy, I don't know. Yeah. But Thomas is always text-heavy, so I really don't I, don't, I really don't know. But, you know. But, yeah, the, the things like that, there's some, some panels in here that could be wow panels that kind of suffer because there's so much crammed in. This, this thing honestly needed to be probably like a 64-page book to breathe more, honestly. Ugh. I don't know. But, anyway. We get into Superman's dream, and I just want to say I miss Clark Kent in a fedora. 
I prefer the blue fedora. He's got a white one here, but you know the white screams golden age, and he's just a sharp looking dude in yeah. the fedora and stuff. I miss men wearing hats. Mm-hmm. I, I do. You know, if there's just something about I do too, so cover up my bald spot. So. <laughs> well, there's just, and I mean, I'm talking about not a ball cap. You know, yeah, guy, yeah. Plenty of guys wear ball oh, caps, yeah, especially but, around here. You know, a nice. Fedora, or not, you know, just yeah. a nice hat. I miss that. There's the, I don't know. I miss that. I miss guys just, you know, in, in sharp suits and things. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I, not that I'd want to wear that to work every day, but still, I kind of miss it. I really like Buckler's art in this, like I said, but I really don't like his Earth 2 Superman symbol. I mean, that thing doesn't look like it could ever be an S. It's like all lopsided, and it's kind of following. The way Kurt Schaffenberger drew it in the Mr. and Mrs. Superman feature in Superman Family at this time. So it's not unprecedented, but I'm so glad George Perez kind of did his take on that in Justice League and then in Crisis on Infinite Earth. So that would become the default Earth 2 Superman logo because it is so much better than than whatever the hell this thing is. It's just ugly. <laughs> Um, I mean, it, no. Yeah. I mean, it looks like somebody was trying to decorate a cake and accidentally cut too much off of the tip. <laughs> kind of. But see how, like, there's so much, the yellow uh, fish, I always thought they looked like fish. The yellow, the <laughs> the yellow knockout on the bottom that's coming from the side is like humongous. It should, mm-hmm. the, instead of the top one being bigger, it's just weird lopsided looking. The, now, now, I know this was one of your your uh, sticking points, but the idea of someone on Earth-1 dreaming about Earth-2 goes back to the Flash of Two Worlds, where Barry Allen postulates that the that Earth-1 writers like Gardner Fox tuned into Earth-2 while dreaming, hence the comics published on Earth-1 that featured the JSA. So, so it's not unprecedented. Thomas is playing, uh. it, he's playing with a trope from... No. <laughs> I'm noping out of that. Okay. Nope. Um, as a big Robin fan, I appreciate the fact that Superman's radio show recognized his popularity and importance, and it really irks me that Batman and Robin have become so separated in media over the last 30 years. So. And what I want to know, this is the part that bothered me about Robin. I don't know if we're to that part yet, but when Superman rescues him from the boat, yeah. he's in his Robin costume, but he's like, I'm Dick Grayson. So if he didn't know already, right? Well, yeah, he blurts out, "Oh, you know," he he calls him Robin. No, he, just, he says Dick Grayson first. Oh, I know, but Superman calls him Robin. Yeah, and he says Robin, you. But 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 how did you know that? And I mean, why did you call me Robin? My name's Dick Grayson. And Superman says, "I'm afraid you're a cape investor, a dead giveaway, Dick Grayson, alias Robin the Boy Wonder." And, you know, and he had it looked like he had a blanket on him, but he's supposed oh. to have like a coat. So I guess Dick, like, I don't know if he didn't have his regular clothes with him. He put a trench coat on, took his mask off, and had his Robin I'm suit on. I'm pretty sure the little green booties is going to give you away, dude. <laughs> yes, unless you think you're, somebody thinks you're in the stage production of Peter Pan. then Or Robin Hood. Robin no, Hood. Not so much. Yeah, then, then you're more than likely Robin. Yes, that's true. Green booties! So, in this flashback... <laughs> You know, Batman's encased in this wax alloy. Do we think, how do we think Batman's breathing? Did they poke, they put straws in his nostrils when they covered him in the wax alloy like they do? I don't know. They said he was like in a suspended animation. 
Uh, again, <laughs> this whole story. Uh. Yeah, well, you know, this, I mean, Thomas is just adapting things here. This isn't his story. This is from the radio show. So. I know. I think it's funny that the doctor, you know, we get this big dramatic moment when Superman, when we get back to the present, the doctor declares Superman dead. I mean, what is your, is your uh, degree in Kryptonian physiology, doctor? I, you know... I mean, you know, Bones said in Star Trek VI he didn't know Klingon anatomy. So, I mean, why would this guy just assume, oh, Superman's dead? You know, he's an alien. Everybody knows it. I'm, you know, and aliens aren't, you know, a big thing in the DC universe. So, And then we get into the meat of the issue and all the different origins of the first meeting of Superman and Batman. Oh. And that's where Cindy's head starts to hurt. You have to figure comics worked under the impression that readers used to turn over every five to eight years, so they never worried much about doubling up on such things until fans like Thomas became creators and began crafting stories to appeal to an older audience who didn't stop reading comics at age 12 and just kept reading. So it's kind of, it's kind of an interesting thing that he's involved in this because he was the, one of the very... He was one of the very first fan turned creators, if not the first. And uh, uh, you know, the one that, especially out of the fan, out of fandom, he was active in fanzines and obviously helped start Alter Ego. And right. it was a fanzine, and of course now it's a magazine, and he runs it as the editor. But it's it's interesting that you know if you go back and look like. A lot of super, especially Superman, there'll be a Superboy story in 1952. By 1956 or seven, they're doing a Superman story using the same plot. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's a, a lot like there's a there's an earlier Superman story that's pretty much the story of Monel, but then they told it in the Superboy comic, and then mm -hmm. it stuck. You know, so it's uh, it's kind of interesting. I, I always wondered why didn't Superboy just stop? Bruce, even though he didn't know it was Bruce Wayne, from making off with his fingerprints. I mean, he could have taken him, in, taken him into the upper atmosphere, waited for him to pass out, and just took him if he wanted to. Yeah, you know, you know. Then he could have dropped him off on a top of a mountain and hoped he fell off, like on the Adventures of Superman, with those those crooks found out that Clark was Superman, and he left him on the mountain. I'll be back in a little bit for with food and stuff. You stay here now. Don't go down the mountain. It's dangerous. And then they conveniently die. You know. <laughs> now, I love the Robin Superboy team up. It made it into the greatest team up stories ever told, trade paperback. So I've read that one a lot. I hadn't read it. This is the first time I knew about it in this one because it's not in that world's finest 80 page giant. But I, I just like the idea that, you know, that's a fun idea that Robin would go back in time and meet Superboy, you know. Yeah. So I like that. And Professor Carter Nichols got a shout out in Return of the Cape Crusaders. They, they, I remember you saying that when we were watching it. Yeah, he was working at the where the the villains steal the replicator ray. Mm -hmm. So, and he was the one that you know you would send Batman and Robin and sometimes Superman back through time. They met the Three Musketeers and and then E. e. Nelson Bridwell used him as uh, in a Super Friends comic uh, as the uh, guardians of the Wonder Twins. They stayed with him and learned about Earth through him. Oh, okay. That you know now that didn't happen on the cartoon, but you know. In the comic, it did. That line about, of course, we're wiser about time travel now. That's bull. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that I know time travel could be used to solve everything if they can do it, which, of course, Superman can. And, you know, Superman can just time travel on his own power back then. And that's not right. And 
you know, but neither is saying it doesn't work. Just, just again, don't explain it, you know, just, you know. Some things just are. They just are, yeah, so, yeah. I know it's a bit much, but part of me likes Bruce Wayne being the flying fox. I, I mean, you compound that with his dad being Batman, him being Robin, and all that other stuff, and it's a ton of baggage uh-huh. to point toward Batman, but... It's it's goofy and I and I love it. I just can't help it. <laughs> I know, I'm glad you love. Lana gives Bruce an orange cow with pointed ears that's said to have mystical properties. The Batman villain Catman wears an orange cow with pointed ears that's supposed to give him nine lives and you know so, mystical properties. Mystical properties. So hmm, that's <laughs> that's interesting. Now Roy Thomas would remember the name Flying Fox and give it to his surrogate Batman character in the post-crisis Young All-Stars title when the Earth 2 Batman was erased from continuity. So he was the Batman replacement. Right. And he was like a Native American hero called the Flying Fox, although he actually could fly. But, you know, but still. Ah, the hypno-wheel. What? I, what? Just what? What? Well, it could be worse. He, he could. I mean, I felt like we were just watching, like, a, the Men in Black movie. Well, didn't like it. Ching! <laughs> Ching. I mean, and like Will Smith says, you're going to hurt her brain. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Racing all that stuff. Right. Well, it could be worse. And what about, you know, Lana is remembers, you know, he only erases himself unless he goes and everybody that was in class with Bruce does it to them too. Yeah. I mean, how's that work? Everybody in Smallville, oh, it's hypno Will time. That's a good point. He shouldn't have erased that he knew Bruce Wayne. He should have just erased that he knew that Bruce Wayne was going to be Batman because when he shows up again, he didn't remember him. Yeah. So Lana's like, remember that really dreamy guy, Bruce Wayne? And Clark's like, what are you talking about? Remember Bruce Wayne? He lived here for a few months and you and me hung out with him and I really liked him and you got so jealous. You're crazy, Lana. You're nuts. <laughs> you know, Lana and Lois would be drooling in a, a sane asylum. They'll be in Arkham. Yes. In a rubber room with uh, for all the manipulations. Well, and- but then all she has to do is go to, you know, anybody else that was in class with him and Superman's like, um, Clark, really, at this point. Well, I don't remember. I don't remember. You know, I'm like... <laughs> What? <laughs> Good point. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now no. it could be worse. The hypno wheel. How? Because he could have. He could have had the super kiss Batman like he did Lois at the end of Superman too. Hey, well, you know, Batman's like, hey, as long as it's not sexy. <laughs> Maybe that's what he was remembering. Uh, 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 uh. Okay, we're getting punchy. Yeah, we are. Uh, the editor's note about Superboy and Bruce's final meeting is incomplete, and it's actually incorrect. It actually came from the Superboy Spectacular number 1, which was a one-shot put out in 1980. That was DC's first direct sales-only comic. Mm. So you can only get it through comic. Shops and I think they like distributed to school systems or something too. But uh, when Batman thinks back to the story with Power Man, where he thought back to their first case, that's like a two-in-one flashback. That's really hard to put in a synopsis. Yeah, I was trying I'm to figure sorry. out how do I say that? How do I say that? Okay, Batman's thinking back to the time that he thought back to the time. Yes. <laughs> well, and if he was talking about. The first Power Man, isn't it the Batman from the other Earth that it's their his memory and not his? No, 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 no. The the Adam Man 
this is what gets where it gets really weird because, and I don't really know why that Thomas chose to garb Adam Man because in the radio show Adam Man didn't wear a costume and it was radio. They didn't describe it. He didn't have a costume. So Thomas created this idea that that Adam Man had a costume that coincidentally looked like the Power Man that would be on Earth One. So Adam Man's from Earth Two. Power Man is a robot created by Superman on Earth One, and apparently he dreamed enough about this Adam Man, or yeah, the Adam Man of Earth Two, that he created a costume that looked like it. It was in his subconscious somewhere. So apparently he's had these dreams before. If you all could see my face right now, <laughs> I have it look this incredulous look on my face as I'm looking at it. I don't know if it was just like, I like that design, it's cool, and maybe, you know, it, it's a hook for, I mean, it was a hook for me, because I knew that story, you know? Yeah. And so I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, I, I know this guy, he's not, one, he's not a bad guy, two, he's not called Adam, man, what's going on, you know? But it is, it's another one of those, it's like, okay, he just happened to design the costume that looked like that, you know? So it's just, yeah, it's kind of weird. I, this this whole story just made me have a Scooby Doo moment. <laughs> yeah, you know, knowing the world's finest stories from that old eighty-page giant number one seventy-nine, I can tell you, many of the panels are just redrawn by Buckler, but I can't really blame him for that here. If Dick Sprang said it was good and he drew it, then it was good. So you know, why not? So. Uh, I like the idea of Batman and Robin just dragging Superman's near lifeless body through a waterfall. <laughs> what if he drowned? What if he was so weakened by kryptonite he just drowned? Yeah. I, I mean, mean, you know. We're just going to stick him in the water, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, he's 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 he's, he's not making it, Batman. He's barely breathing. Let's douse him in a waterfall, you know. And, and then and they pull, pull him back out, and he's like, uh, he's not breathing at all, Batman. It's like, oh, shit. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, um, let's get back to the Batcave really quick. <laughs> uh, and yes, Batman and Robin can make a convincing Superman costume out of their color-coded parachutes in a very short amount of time. They got an A plus in home ec. Yes, <laughs> you can just can't you see like Adam West and Burt Ward and and. Adam West is Batman's like, now, Robin, aren't you glad that I encouraged you to take that sewing class, old chum? Gosh, yes, Batman. It really came in handy this time. <laughs> uh, now, also, of course, and this is everyone's favorite thing. If you have trouble with the parachute costumes, then you probably won't buy that Batman can wear a Superman mask over his cow. <laughs> Especially once they started drawing his ears so long. I you know. know. So, I mean, do I they mean, like fold over? Dick him? Sprang's Batman ears were about like Adam West. Yeah. You know, so I mean, you know, barely stuck up off of his head. But, but I mean, Rich Buckler's got Neil Adams' Batman ears it's sticking up, you know, like at least a foot off his, I, off his head. I, uh, <laughs> but now that does bring me to another point. During this period, in flashbacks to old stories, like in uh, Untold Legend of the Batman, they would show Batman of Earth-1 having the yellow oval even in the past. I don't like that. He didn't have it in the stories, 
And to me, it was, they couldn't ever decide. It's like, okay, he, he had the original non-oval, and then he changed. He had the shorter ears, and then he changed his costume, you know. And then they, other times they'd say, nope, he always looked just like this with the yellow oval, long ears, which is what they're doing here. And I think it would have helped you identify where you were at. Right. You, know, you got right. Robin spit, the, you know, his double curls. Yeah, yeah. To kind of help you say you're in the past. Which actually Dick Grayson, Earth One Robin in the present never appears in here, despite him being on the cover. So, um, which of course George Perez draws his Teen Wonder, New Teen Titans yeah. Robin on yeah. the cover, and he's not actually in this book. But anyway, why couldn't Batman just have let Steve Lombard die? No one would have minded. No, but the, he didn't add anything to the story. Well. The com I've I've read interviews with some of the comic creators. The Steve Lombard was created in the seventies as a as a foil for Clark Kent, obviously to right. you know, and a some comic relief. He'd pick on Clark Kent, and somehow Clark would do something that to him at the end of the story to kind of teach him teach him a lesson or or something. And and no one really liked but him. He, I don't think he learned nothing. Yeah, he won't learn nothing. Nobody but Julius Schwartz, the Superman editor, really liked him. The creators all disliked him, didn't want to, didn't really want to use him, but he kind of made him. So, I mean, he was added to the, to the, uh, he was in the Man of Steel movie as a, he wasn't in BVS though, which was kind of odd, but anyway. Scratch one Daily Planet globe. So, you know, how many times has that thing been destroyed? I don't know. Oh, they've got them in a warehouse. Just boom, boom, boom. Yeah, yeah. They get them from Gotham with all the giant props. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. Good. It's a good thing Batman was able to go to Adam Man into holding off on killing Superman until he could do it in public, or this issue would have been quite a bit shorter. I mean, you know. Yeah. I, you know, I said they went back to the Wayne Foundation building. I'm not really 100% sure it doesn't say that. I'm assuming they did, because back then Bruce was living in the Wayne Foundation penthouse, and the doorman, he, you know, he's, he obviously knows the doorman there. Yeah. And the doorman has this funny aside. It's like, he's like, who's Bruce Wayne think he's kidding anyway? I got a TV, too. And I know that reporter guy, Clark Kent, when I see him soused. You never saw Cronkite in that kind of shape. <laughs> it's like, oh, TV anchor's drunk, and he's coming in with his rich buddy Bruce Wayne, mm-hmm. you know? It's like, it's kind of interesting. Uh, now that'd be on Facebook. You know, Bruce Wayne brings, you know... Yeah, oh, yeah, it'd be, you know. it'd be all over, uh, it'd be all over, uh, what's that, what's that uh, celebrity rag, TMZ stuff? Yeah, 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 yeah. all that junk, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Superman... He thinks back to the way they discovered their secret IDs. And to me, that seems... I really don't know. They, The way he thinks back to that is just because Batman gives him a pep talk. It's like, what? how did that really trigger that memory? You know, to a point, I guess maybe when they got close enough, they knew each other's identities. But the Superman even mentions that that story, although it's famous and fun, it's kind of a pedestrian mystery for him, you know, it's not a big stakes adventure. Well, and the whole thing, I mean, you think about this, they're on this cruise ship. Yeah. And it's the whole thing of Bruce Wayne, the millionaire billionaire, whatever he is at that point. Yeah. Somebody be asking him to share a room yeah. with somebody else. Bull crap. One, any, probably no millionaire would say, they'd say, okay, I'm not... One, they wouldn't be on a cruise with a bunch of people like that. No. They'd be on a their private, private yeah. yacht or an exclusive cruise. Two, they would say, uh, no, I'm not sharing a cabin, and I will have your job 
uh-huh. you know, uh, you know, I own stock in this, this, and this, this or something. And three, if you're Batman, you're going to say, uh, no. Nobody's sharing my cabin because I have my Batman costume in my suitcase. They might find my utility belt. Yeah. I'm like, no. Again, I nope out of this. Well, of course, like that's that's the original story, and it's a fun, you know, it's a cute little story, and it's famous. And but yeah, if you it it quickly falls apart if you think about it too hard. I just nope. (laughs) Yeah, the story where they have to switch identities when Lois sees Clark change to Superman. That was the very first Superman-Batman team-up in World's Finest when the, the book switched from, like, it was a, you know, a anthology book with multiple, lots of pages uh, to a smaller book. Page count, basically, is why they started teaming up. Oh. And, uh, you know, that story is one that my dad remembered. I guess he read that comic to me or read it himself or something, too. He even mentions that from time to time. So that that sticks out. You know, of course, they did things like that. You know, they even had fun with that on the, the Superman-Batman Batman, Superman Adventures with uh, the nighttime episode where Superman dresses as Batman yeah. and Bruce is missing and things like that. So, you know, that's always fun. Lois really was a busybody back then, but she'd be in a nut house after Superman jerked her around that way. And I think it's <laughs> I think it's hilarious that Superman actually calls her a busybody in this story. <laughs> and then we get to Adam Man's origin. Now I don't know how much of this was straight from the radio show because I, I haven't listened to all. I've heard bits and pieces of the Adam Man radio sh- show stories, but. This is very familiar to anybody who knows the origin of a certain shield-slinging Avenger. Uh, uh, yeah, from Marvel. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Were Simon and Kirby listening to their radios back then? I I think they could have sued. Uh, that's all I can say. I mean, I was just like, <laughs> wait a minute. If there was any doubt on what's going on here, the Daily Star building should have tipped off any comic fan worth his salt in 1981. He goes into the Daily Star. Star, yeah. Not the, now, of course, the Daily Star is kind of a sticking point because, yes, that was briefly one of the names of Clark Kent's newspaper that they decided, okay, that's the name of it on Earth 2 because the Earth 2 Superman, the Golden Age Superman stories don't just work as printed on Earth 2. You have to change the Daily Planet to the Daily Star, because the Daily Planet was quickly adopted. It's in the Fleischer cartoon. Right, right. It's on the radio show. So in the radio show, he was working at the Daily Planet. So, you know, it's, you know, you got to kind of fudge it a little bit. So, um, Superman finding the costume, burying him in it, and making a coffin and putting the insignia on it is a bit convenient. You know, it's... Yeah, just a smidge. Just a bit convenient. Like, hmm, I better dress this guy in his costume, make a metal coffin... Put the insignia on it so when he comes back later, because he's a supervillain, and I know he'll come back later, it'll be this big epic reveal when he comes back. Yeah, and I'm going to bury him in Gotham City. <laughs> uh, yeah. I do like when Adam Man shows up at the at the stadium. Superman just stand there with his hands on hips. That's, yeah. you know, that's, excuse me, General. Care to step outside? You know, that's that. You Basically, know. <laughs> I'm getting ready to hand your to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, mm, yeah, that's Superman. That, you know, he's like, I don't care. You got kryptonite. I'm still going to find a way to beat your butt. You know, that's, that's awesome. Of course, he's got a plan, but well, yeah, yeah. with Batman. But now I'm pretty sure 
Superman shouldn't be able to control his molecular vibrations enough to pass through dimensions like that. I I could be wrong, but I think that's just the Flash. That's just a Flash thing. I don't think Superman, I think if Superman, they had to use the transmatter device that was like, well, when we did, we did that story with, uh, with Kyle Benning when we did oh, the, yeah. the Superman, uh, with a, uh, Earth 1 and Earth 2 Superman had to merge to fight that yeah. creature that, from Superman family. Uh, they had to use the transmatter device then to, to cross worlds. So I think that that's not really a thing for Superman. <laughs> so, hmm, kind of fun. That's, uh, yeah. Now, it was always a good thing when the Grey Temple Earth 2 Superman and the awesomely costumed Earth 2 Robin showed up. Because I love those guys, and I still do. So anytime they and show, they're only—I mean—they're given teeny tiny panels. Well, technically I mean, they were in—they were in it earlier because that was them fighting Zoltan. But you don't, you know. Yeah, but I mean, him and that was that I Superman know. and that Robin. I know, but I mean, I'm talking about. Right, right, yeah, but in their adult, the older guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm a sucker for especially the Earth Two Robin, but also a big fan of the Earth Two Superman. Now, Buckler would draw a classic team-up between the two Superman, Earth-1 and Earth-2, next year in the DC Comics Presents Annual Number 1. That's a comic we should do sometime. That, that is, that's kind of a, that's a, almost a, a prequel to Crisis, because yeah. that's where you meet um, Alexander Luthor and Lois of Earth-3. Uh-huh. You know, you know so it's, uh, that, that's, a, that's a great story. Now, later this very year, Batman and Earth 2 Robin would team up in Brave and the Bold, number 182, and we were told that story took place before this one, because Robin was pretty resentful of the younger, still-breathing Dark Knight, and that's one of my favorite comics of all time, and that we covered that with Rob way back on yeah. an early episode. Now, I, I know this one, this one just, like, just killed your brain. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, I, I do these things for you. Yeah, yeah. But I, I still love this. I mean, it's 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 fun. It's it's a wacky tribute to a lot of great zany comic books. You know, it, it is overly verbose. I, I will say that. I don't know. It's so complicated. You know, with all of its flashbacks and stuff. I'm not sure how it couldn't be verbose to a point. But then you have Thomas's writing style, and it's extra verbose. <laughs> it's just really wordy. But it, you know, if you if you are interested in comics history, and you're a fan of Superman and Batman, and you're a fan of Bronze Age comics and Silver Age comics, this is there's a lot of a lot to love in this one, and it's it's a nice celebration of the Superman Batman team up. And oddly enough, it's never been reprinted that I can tell, which is kind of odd. But a lot of this is. A lot of the early 80s DC stuff is, is just not in print. I mean, they're starting to kind of get it, but like the late 70s and the early 80s are kind of a, that's, you know, you, most of the Showcase Presents volumes dropped off before they got there. There's not a lot of trades from that era. It's like, you know, and, and then from like the mid 80s on, you start to get a lot of trades, mm -hmm. but this era from like it's the, like a five-year gap yeah or 10 like yeah like between like 1975 or so and like crisis there's a lot of stuff that other than like new teen titans or something right it's a lot of stuff that's just not ever been reprinted so it's a shame well we'll take a break and we come back we'll tackle your feedback from past episodes 
Batman Nightcast, a thrilling new podcast from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, hosted by Ryan Daly and Chris Franklin. Nightcast chronicles the Cape Crusaders' adventures in Batman and Detective Comics after Crisis on Infinite Earths. Highlights from this legendary era include Batman number 400, Legends, Mike Barr and Alan Davis, Batman Year One, Batman Year Two, Max Allen Collins, Ugh. Um, the new Jason Todd, Ugh. Millennium? You're not doing this right. Let me take over. Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle. Alan Grant from Jurassic Park? Did you hear me say Norm freaking Brayfogle? Oh, yeah. Son of the Demon. The Killing Joke. A Death in the Family. Batman Year 3. A Lonely Place of Dying. Alan Grant, Alan Davis, Max Allen Collins. Why are there so many people named Alan from this era of Batman? The Rise of Tim Drake. Legends of the Dark Knight. And that's just up until 1989. Did anything exciting happen with Batman after that? You'll have to tune in to find out. Batman Nightcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find it on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Oh, we forgot to mention your favorite issue, When Batman Fires Dick Grayson. You want to find another co-host? You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. Because you demanded it. It's Treasury Cast, a podcast devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. DC, Marvel, Archie, IDW, and more, bigger than life. It's the Treasury Cast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Okay, so we're going to look into the mailbag here. These are mostly comments from the Fire and Water Network page. Some are from Facebook. I pulled them all together. And uh, we uh, last time we did feedback was episode 58. We, we also covered the first few issues of the Future Quest comic. And uh, we got some comments on that. Our first one's from our pal Rob Kelly. And he says, The talent lineup of this book is amazing. Off the comicsology. I think we need to talk to Luke Dobb about making Saturday Morning Fever mm. theme available as its own thing. I hate hearing my stupid voice talk over it in the promo. Now, Rob, it's fine. I can't believe Chris escaped a slap when it came to referencing Penelope Ann Miller and Car- Carlito's way. I knew what he was referring to immediately. She is um uh, pretty memorable in that movie. <laughs> By the way, Cindy sings very well. I hereby request a whole show of her singing and you doing your wide range of voices. <laughs> wonder what I sang. I'm trying to remember what I sang. I can't either. It's been so long ago, I don't remember. <laughs> well, you're, you're probably going to get plenty of voices because I just slip into voices anyway. So Yeah, it's kind of disturbing when he does slip into voices too. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck Coletta says, Thanks for another great episode. I'm loving the Future Quest series as it's nice to see some old characters being injected with new life. I believe DC first approached Darwin Cook about this project, and he did contribute some initial character designs. Cook then suggested Shainer for the project. Anyone interested in Johnny Quest may want to check out the Tom and Jerry SpyQuest DVD that came out last year. I stumbled across it totally by accident and couldn't resist picking it up. The premise of a cat and mouse teaming up with Johnny and the gang sounds ridiculous, and it is, but it's also a lot of fun. Tim Matheson even does a cameo as the president. Mm, I have not seen that, and I, 
and somehow I did not, if I heard about that, I just like forgot it and it like was a total blind spot to me. And uh, the Boomerang will show Tom and Jerry movies quite right. a bit. So hopefully it'll come around there, you know, my Boomerang. But, <laughs> but well, you know, you why know, not? it might. So <laughs> Paul Hicks said in response to something, Cindy, Cindy, Paul said something and Cindy said she puts a pox on him or something. I can't remember what it was, but Paul writes, So in the last week, my wife had been hospitalized. My teeth have started to ache. My left foot has a stabbing pain inside it. I have hit a kangaroo and damaged the corner panel and underside of my car. Plus, I have noticed a cold sore forming on my right hand between my index finger and thumb. Then I listened to Supermate's feedback where Cindy pronounced a pox on me. Cindy Franklin equals witch. <laughs> All I gotta say is... With the exception of your wife being hospitalized, you deserved every bit of it. What about the kangaroo? Eh. Sandy! It's <laughs> awful. Unless it's Wonder Woman's hoppy. I don't care. <laughs> or jumpy or whatever. Yeah, Jumpa. Yeah, 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 whatever, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I asked Paul, you know, I said, well, I hope your wife's okay, and I hope I hope the kangaroo made it. And he says, sorry, Chris, Cindy, the kangaroo didn't make it. <laughs> so, oh, well. And obviously, Paul's in Australia. So yeah. He's yeah. one of the Waiting for Doom guys, so. Uh, which they actually have a Doom Patrol book now to talk about. So they, I don't know if they're going to change the name of their show to Reading Doom or what. I don't know. But anyway, uh, Jeff Nettleton says, I'm waiting for the future quest to hit the trade collection, but this is my childhood. I was a little too young to catch most of these in first run, but saw them in reruns, especially Johnny Quest. The blue woman doesn't match any character I know, so I, was, so I suspect she has been created for this, which is what we kind of thought. The whole thing reminds me a bit of the final few episodes of Space Ghost where he fought the Council of Doom, made up of several of his villains. He crossed over with Mitor, Dino Boy, Shazam, and the Herculoids. I can't recall if Birdman or Frankenstein Jr. were in there. That in turn seemed to inspire the Space Stars format, though Birdman and the Galaxy Trio didn't make it. Instead, we had Teen Force, which seemed to be the Galaxy Trio in All About Name. Uh, yeah, uh, I didn't know that about the end of the original Space Ghost series. But I do remember the uh, uh, Space Stars was the the anthology show they had on in the early 80s where they revived Space Ghosts and the Herculoids and they had like Team Force. And they gave Astro from um, um, the Jetsons, they gave him, he, he was with uh, like a couple other space dogs and this really goofy Burt Reynolds looking guy was their like leader or something it was really strange he had a mustache and it was it was really weird uh -huh. yeah von z writes in super fun episode chris have you read this series this was the um the space ghost series that i did actually mention and i think in the show that dc put out a few years ago where alex ross did the covers and they gave an origin for space ghost i have not read that series i need to track that down and read it ed moore writes in why did the adultification of scooby-doo cause scorn but the adultification of multiple Hanna-Barbera properties was applauded. I'm enjoying them. I'm enjoying them all. Just curious about the different opinions on similar handling of the various properties. Well, now when we said we hadn't read the Scooby book, but we just felt like that that's taking a very you know I mean the, there's nothing in the Future Quest comic that you really can't hand to a kid and let them read. Right. But you know demons and apocalypse and stuff might not be something you want to hand to a little kid. Yeah. You know, I mean, that that was our take. And it might be fine. I don't know. I mean, we're not saying don't go read it. If you like it, that's fine. But we're big Scooby fans here. We've got a... Our daughter's got Scooby-Doo decorated all over her room. And I just... 
I don't want to see something that that's very innocent and childlike just you know rake through the mud and it might not be being raked through the mud but you know I don't want it like a Scooby Doo mashup with Walking Dead okay right and you know nobody have a shit fit about Walking Dead I, it's fine if you like it that's fine but I'm just saying. I don't want to see the two combined. And right. this might not be that, but I don't want to see him going in that direction. direction. That's our opinion, and, you know, that's if you like it, that's great. And I'm glad you're enjoying it. So, um, This is in reference to episode 59 about Star Trek's 50th. Gene Hendricks writes in, All great moments. Thanks again for letting me be a part of this, even if I was mercilessly abused for being a fan of the motion picture. Well, sorry, honey. I apologize. <laughs> I'm a bit surprised that Ahura's line of "sorry, neither" went by with no discussion. Once I realized that she that she was saying that she was neither fair or a maiden, I can't hear it without laughing. Talk about getting past the censors. Yeah, that was a good line. We should have yeah. we should have brought that up. We talked about that even afterwards. But yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Siskoid says, "Lots of great moments. You surprised me with some. You played enough moments that always get to me too. Great stuff." It's Iman, I believe. That's the the Camaloid uh, that was David Bowie's wife in Star oh, Trek yeah, Six. Yeah, yeah. We couldn't decide how to pronounce it. Iman, Iman, or whatever. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with Zara Beth as a name. Nicknames to Zara or Beth, great options for the name holder later. Shame, Chris, shame. See? He agrees with me. See? <laughs> nah. Uh, thanks, Siskoi. He said loved it, guys. Okay. Robert Kelly writes in. Great episode, guys. And for what it's worth, I agree. I'll take Star Trek V over the motionless picture any day. Oh. <laughs> you touched on this a bit, but I do think TOS Season 3 gets a bad rap. Sure, it has Spock's brain, but it also has some real winners, like Day of the Dove, which is on my top three fa favorite episode list. Ah, if only we could get rid of an evil presence just by laughing at it. We're seeing in real life how that doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for real. <sighs> While Shag did cheat a little by picking the Futurama episode, that show does deserve a mention in any history of the show. It's the last time this group of actors were all together, not to mention it's gut-bustingly hilarious. I think my favorite line is when someone asks, what if they hate Star Trek? To which Walter Cohen adds enthusiastically, good question. <laughs> Great stinger at the end, too. One of my fave scenes from any of the movies. If I had to break it down, I'd say Shag equals Kirk, Rob is Chekhov, Chris is Scotty, Cindy is Ahura, Ryan is McCoy, and Siskoid is Spock. I, I don't have any argument with that. <laughs> That's actually pretty good. <laughs> Especially since I have the hots for Scotty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> out, of, out of nowhere in Star Trek V, yeah. <laughs> what? I'm just saying. Oh, you have you have hot me. Oh, okay, me I thought, personally, not a hurrah. Okay, yeah, gotcha. me personally. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Siskoid says that. Oh, he responded to Rob. Siskoid says, two Canadians in the cast, and I'm Spock. Am I to be the outsider forever? With all the disparate hobbies, I'm Sulu of anyone. And Shag says, love this list mainly because I got top billing. <laughs> Jeff Nittleton says, lots of great moments. I have to say, Gene's touched me as he described the animated series episode and Spock's decision. Having made the same decision a couple of months ago, the emotion of it came over me as I listened to the clip. One of the themes of the show has been responsibility and the hard choices you have to make when you take responsibility for a life or lives, as in the case of a crew. Spock takes responsibility to save the ship at the cost of his life. Kirk takes responsibility to preserve the course of history by sacrificing love. Star Trek was very much about being an adult, 
yet keeping that wonder that childhood exploration brings. Maybe that's why I love it so much. Very well said. Very well said. Daniel Budnick wrote in and said, Excellent episode. Several very affecting choices, and the guests were all well chosen. Mastery with Star Trek is strange. Well, to me it is. I love the first four movies. Yes, even the first one, although I fell asleep when I first saw it in the theater. Hmm. But I, I just cannot get into, into any of the series. I've tried many times. Every few years I try again. I almost purchased TOS on Blu-ray from Target on Sunday. Every once in a while I'll watch an episode and enjoy it, but it does not stick with me. I figure that one day I'll watch an episode, everything will click, and I'll have a lot of great stuff to watch. I am a huge Doctor Who fan, and I know that in 2013 for the 50th anniversary I had a great time. November, the actual anniversary, was incredible. Every day there was something new and fun appearing, culminating in the 50th anniversary special. It felt like there were two Christmases that year, one for Doctor Who nerds in November and one for everyone else in December. I do sincerely hope that Star Trek fans are having as much fun as we did. Here's hoping we all make it to the 100th. Yes, very. Yeah, we're we were we got on Doctor Who late, but yeah. we were we were right there with you. We, we well, we kind of came in right right before the 50th anniversary, yeah, I was but we say. we dived in deep, you yeah, know, buddy. and got uh, got into caught it. up sort Heavy. of. Well, yeah, as much as you can get caught up, yeah. Doctor Who. Okay, Darren Sullivan writes in. Definitely looking forward to this episode. The original Star Trek is my all-time favorite series. I'm sorry that we missed the call on this one. I'll blame too many late nights and weekends at the office. We obviously missed out. Coincidentally, Ruth and I have a new episode of Trekker Talk coming out with our Star Trek memories from the original series, the animated series, the comics, the movies, and the conventions. While we've already recorded it, I've scheduled it to post on September 1st. I wanted it to be in September for the actual anniversary month. I'm sure I'll write again later after I've listened to the episode, Darren. Yeah, and that is a great episode of Trekker Talk. Go out and listen to that. And... I am I am insanely jealous of the Sutherlands. They got to like meet the Star Trek cast multiple times, and they even went on a cruise with like the majority of the cast. I think everybody but Shatner and Nimoy were there, like the original crew, yeah. and uh, like in the like mid to late eighties. So it's like wow, and it's I mean it's it's cool. I mean because where else are you going to hear about somebody doing something like that? So mm-hmm. go go out and listen to that episode of Trekker Talk. Jag says Chris and Cindy, such a great episode. You covered so many fantastic moments and really got me in the feels over and over. While my favorite films are 2, 4, and 6, it was the line from 3 that got me the most during your episode. Scott, I'd be grateful, Admiral, if you'd give the word. I'm not going to try to do an impersonation. Kirk, gentlemen, may the wind be at our backs. Stations, please. Thank you so very much for allowing me to contribute to the show in some small way. Live long and prosper. Darren Sutherland writes back and says, Hi, Chris and Cindy. I just wanted to write and say that Ruth and I thoroughly enjoyed your Star Trek anniversary episode. I can tell that we have many of the same opinions in common. I absolutely agree that it is the characters in the original cast that makes me love Star Trek. Their performances still hold up after 50 years, which is why the episodes can be watched over and over again. The memories from all of your guests were great. Ruth and I are both fans of Futurama, so we laughed out loud when Ryan chose that as one of his favorite Star Trek moments. Classic, Ryan. I completely agree that even though it has a few duds, the third season is still filled with great episodes, including Day of the Dove, The Tholian Web, For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky, The Paradise Syndrome, is it Elaine? Elan, I think. I can't have seen that one forever. Elan of Troyes, I think. The Empath, and All Our Yesterdays. I really appreciated your comments about that latter episode and your mention of the excellent sequel books. 
The recent Blu-ray sets do include both the original effects and the enhanced effects. I highly recommend them. Truthfully, I like the enhanced effects. I think they took the right approach, which was to recreate effects that fit the look of the series, but just a little better than what they could do in the 60s. I watched the disc both ways and really think they did a great job with the effects. Just look at an episode like the Doomsday Machine as an example. The enhanced effects help with the menace of that episode as opposed to seeing a store-bought model being used in some scenes like they had to do in the original version of the episode. Andrew Leyland wrote in, Listening now, really enjoyable. That line from a muck time gets me every time. How can you lose interest in T'Pring? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> well, I think we've still got some feedback. We've got all the feedback from the House of Frankenstein, but I think we're going to save that for our next episode. Mm -hmm. and We'll cover that there. Because next episode will be our Christmas episode. I'm sure we'll do something Christmas themed. Not exactly sure what we're going to do, but it'll be our December episode. So right. it'll be fun to cover Halloween episodes during Christmas. Why not? You know, well, get it all together. You know, retail stores refuse to let us separate the holidays now. So why should we be any different? You know, like the, the ornament that I'm doing for all of my programs this time, it says, Merry Everything. <laughs> I'm not even trying, you know. <laughs> It's got purple and pink and green and red. It's I got all the colors on it. And I'm like, just marry everything. Heck with it. Yeah. I give up. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that satisfies not only the fact that all these holidays are getting just crammed closer and closer together, it seems, but also all the people who would have a PC fit over. Yeah. If you say Merry Christmas or whatever, you know, so... So, uh, but we will uh, undoubtedly have a holiday-themed episode. And I say holiday theme because we're going to have Christmas and Halloween. <laughs> yeah, Christmas, Halloween, maybe some Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. thrown in there. Well, speaking yeah. of which, because this is the November episode, I cannot end this episode without a special, special tip, a special safety notice from our intrepid captain. So hang on, hang on till the end of this episode because uh, it just wouldn't be the Thanksgiving season. Uh, if we didn't hear from the Shad himself. So, uh, and we'll talk to you guys next time. And to our folks, our friends here in the U.S., we hope you have a happy Thanksgiving. And uh, our friends that aren't in the U.S., I'm sorry you don't get to eat delicious turkey. So, <laughs> Or, as Danny says, you know, let's hear from the deep-fried turkey guy. Yeah. <laughs> See you later. Bye. Bye. Supermates is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises Worldwide. And he is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright their respective holders. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied. So please don't sue my mommy and daddy. <laughs> Emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Comments can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook by searching for Supermates and FW Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter by using the hashtag FWPodcast. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. And you know wherever I am, I'll come running, oh yeah baby, to see you again. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, now all you got to do is call. 
and I'll be there, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got a friend. Hi, I'm William Shatner, and I love fried turkey, but turkey and oil are a dangerous combination. So watch this video. I want your comments on it. I want to know how you plan to keep yourself, your family, and me safe from turkey fryer fire. I want a deep fried turkey. I want a moister, tastier turkey. I want a deep fried turkey. I want a moister, tastier turkey. It started as a hunger. I was young and arrogant. I was young and arrogant. Blinded by my hunger, I ignored safety. I want a deep fried turkey. I want a moister, tastier turkey. I want a deep fried turkey. I want a moister, tastier turkey. When I laid my hands on that fryer, I didn't want to let go and go. Back then, everyone was doing it. Everyone was doing it. I once loved this piece of metal. Keep yourself, your family, and me, me safe from turkey fryer fire. So dangerous. So dangerous. You can't even imagine a Fried turkey tastes great. It's a great taste. I love fried turkey. Fried turkey. You gotta be safe. Pop, pop, come on, come on. Dingle dangle, dingle dangle. Pop, come on. Where's the dingle dangle? Dingle. Oh, wet frozen turkey. Push together, make steam. Push together, make steam. Pushing the hot oil and igniting on the open flame. I want a deep fried turkey. I want a moister, tastier turkey. I want a deep fried turkey. I want a moister, tastier turkey. Blinded by my hunger, I ignored safety. I ignored safety. Spat in the face of science. Turn off the flame. Turn off the flame. Oh, I can't understand what I like to Turkey fryer fires. So dangerous, dangerous. You can't even imagine. I want a deep fried turkey. I want a moister, tastier turkey. I want a deep fried turkey. I want a moister, tastier turkey. That fryer took so much from me. But it gave me a healthy fear. Fear. Fire, metal, oil, and turkey are glorious when in harmony.